Well, good morning, everybody. My name's Aaron. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Trailhead. And it is my great privilege this morning. I'm really excited about this because I get to share with you what is seriously one of my absolute favorite passages in all of Scripture. So I'm really, really pumped about this. We're in the book of Romans, uh, Romans chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a hardback one under the seat in front of you. You can grab that. Um, And those Bibles are on page 944. We've been there for a while. If you come back next week, we're going to be on page 945. (laughs) So, um, but we're going to look at this passage and uh, I don't don't want to oversell it. I don't want to overhype it, but I, I don't think there's a danger in that because this is seriously, this is so good. Okay. At the risk of sounding like totally like a dork, this week I was preparing for this, this sermon. I'm reading this passage, rereading this passage. I just kept getting so fired up about this passage that uh, there was a point where I was like, okay, here's, I'm just going to read it and be like, let's pray and go. Because it's so good. But you guys paid full price for admission, so I'm going to read it and I'm going to talk about it a little bit. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll give you the full 45 minutes, but it's just that good, okay? Um, our focus this week is going to be Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 34, but I want to read all of 31 through 39 because the whole thing is really powerful. It's the culmination of everything Paul's been talking about up to this point in the book of Romans, Everything over the past, we've been looking at this, this passage for the, the book of Romans for almost three years, and everything he's been building up, this is like the culmination of it all. So if you would, follow along with me, and we're going to read these, these verses, and then we're going to focus in on the first four verses. But 31, we'll read uh, 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word of the Lord. Yeah. Oh man. I should say so thanks be to God. Oh my goodness. If you're a Christ follower, I hope, I hope when you hear that, that that just hits you right in the gut. If you're a believer in Jesus, we win. That's what he's saying. This is Paul's, this this passage is referred to by commentators as Paul's victory song. It's the summation of the good news. That's what the word gospel means. This is the gospel. This is the good news. In light of everything that Paul has said up to now, 
In verse 31, he says, what then shall we say to these things? These things being everything else, everything that we've been talking about, everything he said up to now in the book of Romans, in light of all of that, what do we say about all of that? And here's what we say. We win. There's this celebratory feel to this passage. And, and the rhetorical style of it that just builds and builds in such a momentous way. And it just, when, I, I don't know how it hits you, but when I read it, I just feel this rising sense of, he says, if God's for us, who can be against us? We will win. Now, I want to zoom in over the next couple of weeks, look at some of these details in here, but I don't want to miss the big picture, the joy in this passage. Okay. Today, I want to focus in on the first four verses of this, 31 through 34. And as we do that, I would like for you to think a little bit about your reputation. Let me ask you, it's a pretty big group here today, so I don't, just looking out, do we have any famous people here today? Anybody famous? No, okay. All right, that's too bad, because um, really, when I was writing this, I was really thinking this would be a, a better sermon for famous people. Um, you know what? Here's what I mean by famous people. People who care about what other people think about them, right? And we don't have anybody like that here. People, people who measure their words based on how others will perceive them, based on what they say, people like that. People who wonder what someone thinks of how clean their house is or what kind of car they drive. People who... People who want to put their political views on blast so that people in their tribe will applaud them. Or people who are terrified of a conversation turning to anything controversial because they don't know what the person they're talking to thinks about, I don't know, vaccines or masks or the last election or pineapple on pizza or whatever. And they don't want to start a fight. People who secretly hope someone notices their new phone or that they'll have an opportunity to casually mention the awesome vacation they just took. You know... People who post how great their life is on social media so that others will envy them. Or people who do the opposite, post how terrible their life is on social media so they can keep it real in hopes that people will sympathize with them and love them. People, you know, people who are looking for approval. But there's nobody like that here today, right? Okay, here's the problem with the idea of reputation. Or, or approval, or honor, or glory, whatever you want to call it. We all want approval. Even if we say we don't care what anyone thinks of us, we, we care. We want to be loved. We want to be liked. We want to be accepted. All of us do. And the problem, the big problem, is that we seek that approval from sources that are unstable. We seek our approval from other people. And other people are always changing. And so what it means to gain other people's approval is always changing. Have you ever tried to be cool? I was cool once. I was. Uh, for about two weeks in 1998, I was really cool. I was going to bring in a picture and show you. The problem is, the window shifted on what it means to be cool, and so now looking back, you would say, like, you were cool, and trust me, for those two weeks, I was. I really was. 
but it never stays the same. It's a moving target. And you probably don't use the word cool, you don't worry about whether you're cool, but you want to be liked, you want to be loved, you want to be approved of. You want to know that other people see you and recognize you and accept you. And I'm not saying that that desire for approval is bad. It's not. We all have that desire. It's a human desire. It's a deep desire deep down within us. Now, it may get twisted. It does get twisted. And and we look for that approval in the wrong way. We do, because all of our human desires, our deepest desires come from God. They're the way God made us, but all of them get twisted because we go looking for them anywhere else but from God. And when we do that, inevitably, it's going to push us in wrong directions. But it is a real God-given desire. The desire to be known and to be loved comes from God. What Paul says here, In Romans chapter 8, Paul, he asks, because there's a bunch of rhetorical questions in here, and the rhetorical question he leads with is this, what if, Paul asks, what if, what if that human desire to be known, to be loved, to be approved of, honored, that desire for glory, what if that desire is actually satisfied in Jesus? Not in other people, Not from our appearance, not from our success, not from what we own or what we do or how we look. What if that approval actually can ultimately be satisfied in Jesus? Or, put it another way, the way Paul puts it in verse 31. What if God is for us? What if the God of the universe approves of us? What if he knows us and loves us? Wouldn't that supersede everything else? In uh, Action Comics number one, it was a comic book published in April of 1938. And in that comic book, the world was introduced to a new character created by two young men from Cleveland, Ohio, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. The character's name was Superman. He's considered to be the first ever superhero. He was an immediate sensation. The comics sold like crazy and would spawn innumerable imitators. Have any of you ever heard of superheroes before? Those come from, he he was the first one. It was so popular, but... Really quickly, the creators and the readers ran into a problem with Superman. A narrative problem, if you will. See, Superman was too powerful. In in this comic, in Action Comics number one, Superman defeats a, a kidnapper, a domestic abuser, a corrupt politician, and he rescues a woman who's falsely been accused of murder. Those were all deserving bad guys for him to fight and defeat. But the problem was they were all just regular people. And Superman, with all these superpowers that he had, they were no match for him. He doesn't even break a sweat. And eventually, a story like that gets kind of boring. The bad guys come in, Superman comes in, he's way more powerful than them, 
So there's no tension and no drama. He comes in, he defeats them, it's over. And after a few issues, that started to get kind of repetitive. So eventually what the writers and the artists had to do, they had to come up with another creation. Not just superheroes, but they had to create supervillains. Another person or being who's equal in power so that readers would feel a sense of tension. Will Superman win? Now he's fighting against somebody who's his equal. What does that have to do with our passage? I'm glad you asked. Sometimes we think of theology kind of like a comic book. There's a hero, God, and he's like Superman, super strong. And there's an equal villain, a supervillain. You could call it Satan or evil or whatever you want to call it, but we sometimes get this conception in our minds that all of life is a battle between good and evil, and who's going to win? Will, will the good guys, will God triumph over the bad guys, or will Satan get the upper hand? Will evil win out? And we look at our world, and we look at our world with fear, because we look around and we say, oh no, the bad guys are winning. Oh no, Jesus isn't going to make it. Oh no, the Christians aren't doing what the Christians need to do, and God's word isn't going to advance, and all the bad guys are coming against us, and what are we going to do? What are we going to do? That's not our story. Okay, we don't live in a comic book where there's an equal good force and bad force locked in battle, and we don't know who's going to win. Our story the true story is that God, the almighty creator of the universe, is more powerful than anything, any force, any opponent, any villain who could ever oppose him. In fact, our story is not that Jesus will win. Our story is that Jesus all ready one and seriously if he is on our side then who paul asks can be against us this is the rhetorical question that paul's asking it actually sounds a little absurd if we think about it who can be against us? He's the God of the whole universe. He made it all. He can do anything. We know if we think about it, if we believe what it says, we know he wins. I think more often, the problem for us is not God will win or God has won. That's not our problem. The problem is more the first part of that sentence. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's kind of a big if, isn't it? Why should I believe that God is for me? The question Paul asks, and totally, I get this. If God is for us, who can be against us? God is the creator. He's the most powerful. He's the victor. He's the one who has won and will win. I get that. If I'm on his team, okay, that makes sense. I'm going to win. But how do I know 
God is for me. Like, I think I can wrap my mind around the idea, maybe, that there's this omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient God who's in control of everything. But I look at the world around me, I look at my own life, I feel difficulty, I see pain, I see war, I see inflation, I see all this stuff going on. How do I know and why should I trust that if there's a God who's in control of all this, that he's on my side? With everything I see going wrong, why should I trust that God is for me? This is a great question, Paul. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's a pretty big if. But Paul answers the question. Verse 32, he, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He gave him up for us all. There's actually two words in this verse that I want to pause and recognize the impact of them. His own son, his own son for us. His own son. Now, we believe in a doctrine called the Trinity, which is that there's one God who's in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. It's a mystery. It's complex. Don't let that mystery distract from the impact of what Paul is saying in this verse, he, God the Father, did not spare his own son. What God did in sending Jesus to earth as a human to suffer for us, to suffer, to live a perfect life, and yet be falsely accused, be brutally tortured and murdered, that was a sacrifice. That hurt. If, if you're a parent and you think about the way you feel towards your own child, the idea of giving that child, of sacrificing your child for anyone else is unthinkable. Paul is saying God gave his own son. That's not just something you do on a lark. That's not just something like, mm, well, maybe I'll try this. Let's see how that goes. This is the ultimate sacrifice. On Jesus' part, it's the sacrifice of himself. Why would he do that? He gave up his own son for us. For us. Purely from his grace, purely from his love, Paul, Jesus came for us. 
The reason Jesus came to earth, the reason he was crucified, was because we needed it. Like I said, this is the culmination of everything else he said, but if we go back in the early chapters of Romans, Paul very clearly establishes, he spends the first couple chapters establishing all of us, all of us are desperately in need of rescue from our sins, from the things we've done, from the ways that we've turned away from God, we've rejected him, the consequences that come on us and those around us because of those sins, we desperately need to be rescued. And God chose to rescue us by the greatest sacrifice that ever could be made to send Jesus to die, to take our punishment, to take those consequences of our sin for us. And so here's Paul's question. With that kind of sacrifice, with that kind of giving, he's willing to give everything himself, his own son, with that kind of giving, what would not God give? That sentence came out totally weird. What would God not give? Here's how he says it. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If he's willing to give that, what is he not going to give? What is he going to hold back? What is he willing to say? I will lay down my entire life. I will be tortured and killed. But I'm not going to go where? Now what does Paul mean when he says all things? How will he not also give us all things? The all things here is referring to those deep desires. Those deep, again, God-given desires. They're twisted. They get twisted. In our human bodies, in our human experiences, we live life in what we can believe is a fallen and broken world. Our desires go crooked. But they come from, they start from a place of need that God has put into us. We desire approval because approval is a good thing. Love is a good thing. We desire love. We desire security. That's not a bad thing. And God, in his grace, gives us those things through Jesus. He is willing to give us love. Why wouldn't he? Our union with Christ, the blessings of our union with Christ, are not just the future hope of resurrection. We have that. Okay, that is real. One day we will all be in new resurrected bodies, living with God, seeing him face to face. That's real, that's true, that's future. But there is also a blessing here and now. There is also here and now peace and comfort and security even in the midst of our pain and our hurt. The proof, Paul is saying, the proof that God is for us is in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's the evidence. So here's the verdict, because Paul uses here, verses 33, 34, sort of courtroom language. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? 
It's, it's, here's the idea. We desire a good reputation. We worry about what other people think of us. Paul is saying, what can anyone say negatively about you? Who can bring a charge against you? Who is going to condemn you? Have you ever been, have you ever been falsely accused of something? That hurts, doesn't it? You know what's worse? Being truthfully accused of something. Have you ever had that? When somebody looks at you and says, I know you did whatever, and you're like, that's true. And you can't, you can't argue, you can't, I mean, you try, you try to argue, you try to defend yourself. Well, it was because of the, it was because of, but you know deep down on the inside, yeah, yeah, I did it. But Paul's saying, well, who can bring a charge against us? Who can condemn us? The irony is that anybody should be able to bring a charge against us. Everybody should be able to condemn us. But Paul says, but we've already been found not guilty. We've already been justified by Christ's sacrifice. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Again, God, creator of the universe, the one who knows everything, He's the one by his sacrifice who's declared us not guilty. Who is to condemn? Who's going to tell us, you're guilty and here's the punishment? It's Christ Jesus is the one who died. He already took the punishment. More than that, who was raised? He defeated the punishment. And who is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us. To use the courtroom metaphor, Paul is saying this. It's like we've been brought up on charges. All the charges are true, but the judge, the lawyer, and the key witness are all the same person. It's God. He's the one who's going to decide. He's the one who knows everything we did, and he's the one who's arguing in our favor, interceding for us. It's not, what Paul's not saying is that, okay, I know you've done some bad stuff, but you've also done a lot of good stuff, and so we'll argue that maybe the good outweighs the bad. He's not saying that. He's not saying, okay, you've done some bad things, but I think if we bring up a comparison with some other people who have done worse things, maybe we can get you off on a technicality. He's not saying that. What Paul's saying is this, our guilt, our sin, our shame is covered by Christ's sacrifice. It says, who is to condemn? That word condemn will remind us probably of the very first verse in Romans chapter 8 where Paul said, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We are set free. Not because of what we've done. Not because we followed the law. But because of what Jesus did for us. 
And so now Jesus is speaking up for us. He's interceding for us, present tense. He's saying that he has accepted us, that we are his, that we share in his death and resurrection, that the charges against us have been dropped, that we are a part now, we now, we are a part now of the family of God. And we get to share in that family name. We are accepted, we are approved. Do you see what this means? This means we do not have to live for the approval of others. We have already received the approval of the only one who matters. If God is for us, who can be against us? We don't have to live for the approval of others. We also, now follow with me on this, we also don't have to live for God's approval either. Because Jesus already has that covered. We don't gain God's approval by what we do. Nothing Paul is saying here is that who can condemn us? We're trying our best. Who can bring a charge against us? We've done some really good things. When he raises the question of how do we stand? How do we sinners ever hope to stand before a holy God? How can we sinners ever hope to stand before unholy other people? How can we ever stand? He never talks about us. He keeps taking it back to Jesus. It's not about us. It's about what Jesus did for us. We don't have to live our lives constantly trying and hoping and thinking maybe this time we'll get it right. Maybe this time we'll please God. Maybe we'll finally do it the right way. Jesus already gained God's approval for us. If we are connected to him, if we are believing in him, if we are united to him, God already approves of us. And so instead, we're free to live out the implications of that approval. Instead of working for it, we can work from it. We can walk in freedom and confidence, in obedience, in love. We can have love for others because we are already loved by God. Let me give you a real specific application of this. I was thinking about what does this mean? To know that I'm already approved by God and to live in light of that. Jesus said... In the Gospels record Jesus telling us that we should love our enemies. If there's a command in all of Scripture that sounds actually physically, humanly impossible, I think it's that one. The word enemies, now again, we don't live in a comic book, we don't have supervillains, I hope you don't have an arch nemesis. 
Somebody who like, looks just like you but has a giant scar down the side of their face and wears a trench coat. I hope that's not true. If it is, that's actually kind of cool. But <clears throat> I think most of us have people in our lives with whom we have had conflict. Some worse than others, some more sustained than others. Some in ways that have lodged in our hearts for a long, long time and created bitterness and hurt and pain. There are people... There are people that it's really hard for you to think of without feeling a lot of condemnation, both for yourself and for them. There are people who, I'll just speak from experience, there are people I have trouble thinking about without having an argument with them in my mind because the pain and the hurt, and if I could just say, if they could just see, if they could just, and I'm constantly trying in my own heart to justify myself to them. There are people who you know, as much as all of us try to live our lives in a way to impress others or to get others to have a good opinion of us, there are people that you know probably don't have the strongest opinion of you. Well, maybe it's a strong opinion, but not a strong positive opinion. There are people the thought of whom just brings you hurt. There are people who you would, even if it's maybe not the word we usually would use, but there are people who you would, if you honest, were honest about it, could describe as an enemy. How can you love those people? How is it possible to love people who not only have done you harm, but in some cases are still actively seeking to do you harm. How is that possible? I think it has to start with this question. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be an enemy? If God has forgiven all of our sins, if God has accepted and loved us in spite of, honestly, because of all the bad things we've done, if he was willing to sacrifice his own son for us, then A, what does it matter what other people think of you? And B, how can you continue to condemn others? In light of what God has forgiven for you, how can you hold yourself out as the judge of others? It is God who justifies, Paul says. If God is the one who chooses, who determines, who accepts, who loves, how is it your place to bring condemnation towards someone else. If God has loved you so deeply in the midst of your sin, is it possible that you could love someone who actively dislikes you? Now, the answer to that in human terms is absolutely no. I'm not capable of that. The only way this is possible, and Paul has said this throughout Romans chapter 8, is in the power of the Spirit. 
It, is, it would take supernatural ability to love someone who's actively trying to do you harm. What Paul is saying here is that that is available to us. If God is for us, if he's given us all things, then that all things includes that ability. The ability to forgive. The ability to love. The ability to look beyond the hurt to see the other person as a hurting and broken person as well. And to love them. And to even, and it's not easy, but even to pray for them. If God is for us, if God really loves us so much that he sent his own son to die for us, if he really loves us that much, then who could possibly be against us? Can you imagine if this is true? Can you imagine what this would look like? Imagine what it would look like to be able to love others without the concern of what others think of you. Imagine that. Imagine the freedom of being able to obey God without constantly worrying, constant anxiety of what will happen if you mess up. Imagine that freedom. Imagine the freedom of knowing that you are fully, completely accepted. Not just accepted, but seen, known, and loved. That you do not have to continually perform to earn that love. Can you imagine that? What Paul is saying in this passage is that it's true. For believers in Jesus, believers, this is our reality. We are free to live like it is true. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to put some reflection questions up on the screen, give you some time to think, to pray, and then in a few moments we'll share communion together. Before we do that, I'm going to pray, and then we'll put the reflection questions up on the screen. Heavenly Father, God, what, what can we say to these things? You have been so good to us. We deserve none of it. And you've given us all of it. God, I pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds again today to hear your truth, to hear your good news, to feel the freedom of what it means to know that we are totally and fully and completely accepted by you. You love us. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for taking our sin. Thank you for the promise of a future hope of resurrection. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your forgiveness. Help us to live now in light of that truth, in light of your love. In your name we pray, amen.